Welcome to School Nutrition Dietitian. I'm your host, Dahlia Kinsey. I work with programs all over the country as a registered dietitian and school nutrition specialist to save operations time and money on everything from employee training, social media marketing, and wellness programs. Every week, I bring you tips, tricks, and inspiration from fellow professionals in school nutrition and related fields. This week, we have Chef Brenda on the show. Chef Brenda has a ton of experience working with the school nutrition program. And as a recipe developer, shares a lot of fantastic tips with us about how we can maximize flavor in our dishes, how we can effectively communicate recipes to staff. And she also speaks to us about mindset and how we can grow continually in our professional lives. This is a fantastic episode. Let's get started. Nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind now you're ready for your academics focus time to handle business breakfast you don't want to miss it help your body to replenish clean food clear mind that is the vision tune in to the school nutrition dietitian hi chef thank you so much for coming on the show Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited for this opportunity. So we first met when you came to my district with another team of chefs to do culinary training at the start of the school year. And at the time, I had no clue that you had such an extensive background in recipe writing and book writing, which I find totally fascinating. So I reached out to you hoping that maybe you could share a little bit of your journey with us since it seems pretty unique. Yes, absolutely. Thank you. Um, it is. It's, it's When I think back from the beginning of starting in child nutrition, it uh, kind of seems like a blur and very exciting all at once. Yeah. So how did you end up in nutrition, period? Why were you interested in dietetics? Well, you know, I grew up on a farm when I was born until I was 12. And my mom was always very interested in nutrition. And then I went down a very healthy path. And that is what got me on the dietetic path. And when I was in culinary school, or excuse me, when I was in dietetic school, I was learning so much about nutrition that I felt like I just wasn't grasping the nutrition and the food concept together. And so I started thinking, gosh, you know, people don't eat nutrients, they eat food. And I would love to learn more about cooking. And so when I graduated from um, the University of Idaho with my with my dietetic degree, then I decided that I was going to go, going to go to culinary school so that I could really marry the two. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to work in nutrition and uh, culinary arts all at the same time. Hmm. And that really makes sense because the focus is more on how metabolism works in the body, how individual nutrients affect different things. It isn't on the practical end of it when you're studying to be a dietitian. And like you said, people don't eat nutrients, they eat, you know, actual food, which is why I like how the standards changed when I was a kid in school. They were focusing on individual nutrients and making sure kids got like a certain amount of vitamin C, maybe a certain amount of D, but it makes more sense now to look at it like food. A food based, right? Absolutely. And I have to say too, I think personally, I, I am a dietitian, which makes me a scientist, but I'm also a chef, which makes me an artist. Mm. And for me, I think I'm much more of an artist than I am a scientist, although I love the science part of it. And it's so exciting to me. And I love reading the research, but on a day-to-day basis, I love the artistic aspect that that brings me a lot of joy. Mm. Now, when it comes to the science aspect, does food science play a big role in how you approach cooking? Oh my gosh. It's, (laughs) I think more than we ever even realize, you know, it's so funny because just today, I'm standardizing recipes right now. 
and I'm working on my sixth cookbook, 60 recipes for the USDA, their CACFP recipes. And one of my employees, we were just talking about how measuring is so much a part of food science. And the reason why that is, is because when you think about measuring something like flour, and I teach this in, in a lot of the classes that I do, that especially when you're cooking in bulk, the amount that you put into the, the dish has a chemical reaction. And so when I teach this in classes, what I do is I'll, I will get some flour and I'll, I will break people up into groups and I'll give them separate directions on how to measure the flour. And so, you know, I'll have one group scoop it into the flour, which we know we're not supposed to do. But I think some of us are still doing that. Mm-hmm. And then I have another group where they add some flour into the cup and then you pound it until you can get as much in there as you need. And then I have another group do it the way they should, where you're spooning it into the cup. And then we measure it and we see what different amounts that we get in the flour. And, you know, when we think of flour, we think of baking. But I think this is so important also in cooking meats and vegetables and all the different things that we're cooking, especially in standardized recipes, because the amount of food that you put into that dish, it really does have a chemical reaction to how it's cooking, whether if, you know, if you're putting too much meat into a pan, then it it may steam rather than get that nice caramelization on the bottom if it doesn't have a lot of space. Mm. But going back to the flour, you know, if you, if you have one, let's say one cup, you know, you're mashing it down and you get 5.5 ounces, a one cup of flour should really be 4.25 ounces. You know, when you start looking at us, making standardized recipes with a large, large portion of flour, that can make a huge difference in your recipe. And that and that is food science. And I have to add with flour, you should never measure more than a quart at a time just because it, it mashes down. Mm. See, it's stuff like that that I feel like is really crucial to know. And I never heard that before you just said it. So for people who don't have the benefit of all of your training, what should we be looking at? Are those directions or those types of notes included in some of the resources that you've made? Well, I'll tell you, we are in the process of making some of those right now. We just met a couple of weeks ago and, and I know I, I've done a lot of these different trainings and they're just not out there um, available, but we are going to start um, putting some of that stuff out pretty soon. So you'll want to um, check my website if you'd like. And can you go At, ahead and uh, tell everyone what the web address is? Yes, it's um, Chef Brenda. So we're going to be changing that up a little short, shortly after the new year. We're so excited. We're really excited. Our team's been working on it and it's really fun. There is a knife guide on there uh, right now if you'd like to go and um, download that. So that can be really helpful for people who are learning to slice and dice. And there, there's a guide on there to help you with some of the vegetables and fruits that are in the food buying guide. So that's really helpful. But as far as the food science part of it, there's just so many things that I think that we do have to think about when we're cooking, especially with standardized recipes. Yeah. Can you think of off the top of your head more issues that you have seen, like mistakes that people make while they're cooking and leads to them getting a result they didn't expect because of a little gap in their knowledge, like don't measure out more than a quart of flour at a time that you've maybe observed in trainings that you've done? Well, I think um, understanding the scale is really important, making sure that, you know, when we're looking at uh, half of a pound, that's not 0.5, you know, there's 16 ounces in a pound. So half of a pound would be eight ounces, things like that. And then definitely measuring using the scoops. Is is it a heaping scoop? Is it a flat scoop? Is it, you know, maybe a little bit under the scoop? It's, it's so important when we're doing standardized recipes. If someone, if the recipe tells you that you are to use a number eight scoop, which we know is a half a cup, 
but it's telling you it's 4.5 ounces, you know, weight and measure are not the same thing. So it's always a good idea to take that scoop and that number eight scoop and then measure out what 4.5 ounces really looks like and put that out as a sample so that everybody knows what that looks like when they're serving that recipe. I think that's part of our mise en place, which is everything in its place and something that we should always be doing when we're in the kitchen is making sure that when we have recipes, we're sitting down and talking about those recipes every day before we jump into it. So everybody is measuring and doing the same thing all the time. Hmm. And I think it's just, it's just really important because those are some of the mistakes that I see because we're not communicating and we're not doing things exactly the same. And I think that goes along with cooking. I was talking about the, the ground beef earlier where I've seen, you know, one person make the sloppy joes and they are crowding the ground beef. So their ground beef is getting really steamed rather than the other person who is making sure they have room in in the the tilt skillet and they might be cooking their ground beef in batches and it cooks a lot faster. So it really isn't that much more time, but they're getting that nice golden brown at the bottom of the ground beef as they turn it. And that to a chef is gold. And so it creates so much flavor and wonderfulness. So their sloppy joes are coming out tasting so much better and you're getting that just nice wonderful caramelization which is actually called there there's a scientific term for that which is called uh, millard and it's 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 the nice browning part of that happens with the cooking also happening with the the vegetables the the caramelization of those natural sugars with the vegetables when we roast our vegetables and so again you don't want to crowd it you want to make sure you give it some room so that it can not steam, but get a nice caramelization. When you're writing a recipe and you want to make sure that the people who are reading it don't crowd it, do you control for that by knowing the equipment and telling them precisely what amount to put in? Or since people may make your recipe in different quantities, do you explain it some other way? What language do you use? I try to put it in a chef tip note because in child nutrition, we all know we have so many different kinds of equipment out there and, and oftentimes we're, we're very limited. And so there are different ways that we're cooking these foods. So I try to put it in as a tip so, so that people can play with, with the food and hopefully come up with a way that works for them and the, and for the equipment that they have. I know for me, all of my home cooking experience is with an open flame because it gets so hot in Georgia for what feels like most of the year. We spend a lot of time avoiding using the oven. Like you only use the oven maybe just maybe from like November to March and March is pushing it. So when it comes to the methods of cooking that I'm familiar with, I just, I feel like I'm handicapped without an open flame or a tilt skillet. And not all of our schools have a tilt skillet. How do you translate things? Because I've even seen on the USDA site, sometimes the assumption seems to be that there will be an open flame, especially for things that seem to be written for smaller operations, maybe CACFP, for example. How do you translate Mm -hmm. a recipe that was intended for a different type of equipment? Well, I think I I love that you brought up bringing home because I think that the number one thing that we're missing, and I see schools who are successful doing this, is they're taking ideas and they're taking them home and they're starting out on a small scale and experimenting. Mm -hmm. So I love that you say, you know, what we do at home does translate to what we're doing at work in the schools. And so taking a a concept or a recipe or something that that you really want to use in your facility, taking it home and experimenting. With an open flame, typically you can do uh, um, roasting in the oven. I think it's important to make sure that whatever it is, if 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 you're used to sauteing something and now all you have is an oven, 
that you you do want to make sure that you're not crowding crowding it if if you need to get that brown caramelization going on or if you don't have a lot of oven space and you do need to put a lot more in the pan make sure that you're stirring it and you're turning turning that um, heat up really really hot I think sometimes we get really nervous about turning that oven up because grandma always said to turn it on 350 (laughs) and so that is something that oftentimes when I go into schools I just crank that heat up because We are so used to that 350, but again, it takes experience. So we have to go home, you know, cook it in six servings. I always start my recipes out in six servings because that's how I get my flavor profile. And I also really start to understand how those ingredients are working together and and how I want to cook it. Do I want to cook it on the stove? Do I want to cook it in the oven? You know, do I want to cook it in a slow cooker? I know some real small schools are using kind of slow cooker type of pieces of equipment. And so, so how, you know, what do I have and and what can I use? Do I have a steamer? Maybe you don't have a way of browning it, but, but maybe you can steam it and then you, you know, you have a small oven space and you can crank that heat up and brown the top for, for the last few minutes. So, so I think just really experimenting and then taking it in on a large scale to your facility, to your school, and making it, and maybe if you're serving 600 kids, maybe you just make 100 servings so that you can get it right, and then you sample it out. Okay. So you see what the kids think, and then also get get feedback from your from your staff. What do they think? You know, is there a way that you could change the recipe up? Mm. Because they always have awesome ideas. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. And I am afraid of of turning the oven up at 350. That is the magic number. That tends to be what everybody (laughs) wants to start with. I know everything that I've ever put into the broiler has been lost. So I don't... I don't even, it's invisible to me at this point, but I could turn up the temperature in the oven itself. When it comes to layering flavor, that's something that I know chefs really have a penchant for. Like, I don't know how that is something we pass on. So when we get recipes, generally the large quantity recipes, it feels like it's, you don't get those distinct layers or those distinct notes that feel kind of separate, maybe in a restaurant setting. What is the difference? What is something you have to know going into developing a recipe to make that possible? Well, we do like to think of ourselves as restaurants, but we also have to realize that restaurants function a lot differently than we do. They may have a hundred customers coming through, but those hundred customers are probably coming through. uh, I'm just using this as an example. Maybe they have more, but they may be coming through within a three hour timeframe. We have a hundred customers coming through in 20 minutes. And so, I mean, some of us have a thousand customers coming through in 30 minutes, right? We've, we've seen that. And so it's, it's sometimes the reality is that it can be difficult, but it can be done. And everyone has to be open-minded and flexible. And so that might be, that might start with your menu planner, clear back to your menu planner, to your director. Do we really need this many things on the menu, These this many items, if we're going to enhance the quality or have more layers of flavors, which might mean Let's say you're going to do, I'm just coming off the top of my head, maybe we're going to do a street taco bar and we're going to make a slaw. Maybe we're going to make a BLT slaw, something a little bit different, right? And then we have uh, fish and we want to offer fish in there or they can have some shredded pork or something like that. Well, that's going to take more servers than we probably have if we're just serving lasagna, typically. So I think it's important to sometimes step back away from what we're always used to doing and working together as a team and making sure that everyone's flexible and how we're going to change things. And I think the best thing to do when we're going to make those kinds of changes is to get the students involved 
and see what they're eating and where they're eating and how can we mimic this and then watch how they're serving it. Go to that restaurant and watch how they're serving it. How are they preparing it? Ask them questions. Okay, those are great tips. So you have a long history working in child nutrition. How did you, you mentioned that when you decided to get your culinary training, you weren't sure exactly what you wanted to do with it. You just knew you wanted to marry the science of dietetics and the art of cooking. How did you end up realizing school nutrition would be a good fit for your training? <laughs> it, you know, it's so interesting how life happens. There's a little story to it. When I first got out of culinary school, I was actually a private dietitian chef in Austin, Texas, where I went to culinary school. And then I wanted to come home back to um, Boise, Idaho. And there, there's not there at the time, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity and probably not any opportunity for a private dietitian chef. And so I took the job that I could find, which was working in, in the medical field. I was um, working in pharmaceutical medical cells. And it wasn't obviously my passion. I, I'm a chef. Like I said before, I'm an artist. And one day I was walking downtown on it. It was a snowy day and it was really cold. And I got a phone call on my cell phone and it was my roommate from college. And she said, are you walking downtown Boise in your green coat that you wore in college? And I said, yes. <laughs> she said, I can see you from my office window. And I said, oh, my gosh. Well, I was walking by the State Department. And she said, can you come and talk to me? I said, yeah, sure. So I went up and she said, I've been working on this project with a chef and he's wonderful. Don't get me wrong, but I'm really struggling because he keeps adding, wanting to add butter and, and salt. And, and he just doesn't understand what we're trying to do here. And this was before 2010, the 2010 regulations came out. I want to say this was probably about 2007, 2008, around that time. And she said, can you help me finish this project? I just really need to get it done. And I said, sure, you know, I, I, I would love to. How, how fun to get to do this on the side because I hadn't really had an opportunity to get my culinary hands in, into food. And so, so we finished this project and it was really positive. And she said to me, you know, I really want to apply for this team nutrition grant. I want to write a cookbook. And we have new regulations that are coming out. So at the time, I had no idea what that meant because, remember, I'm working in pharmaceutical right. uh, medical cells, right? So I had no Just idea walking down what the that street meant. in your green coat, yeah. <laughs> in my green coat. So, and it was, you know, goose down, big puffy. That's how she noticed me because it was so cold. And so she said, you know, I'm really afraid that if I write this grant, I'm not going to get anyone to apply. Was that something you'd be interested in? Would you want to apply? And I said, sure, why not? <laughs> and so she got the grant and I applied and I was the only one who applied. Wow. And I think they left it open for an extended period of time because they were trying to get people to apply. And so I ended up getting the grant. So that was my first cookbook. And I'm Had, telling so you've you. you've never written one before. No, how I had never written. Even, how do you learn to write recipes professionally in 2007? So I'm imagining there was even less stuff that you could Google. Right, right. Well, you know, Dahlia, I think it's my life experiences. So I said I was a private chef. So I was used to writing uh, for two people. I was used to writing recipes for them. But not, I had no idea what a standardized recipe was. And she tried to explain to me that it was complicated, but I thought, yeah, 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 whatever, you know. I had no idea. And I'm telling you, I don't think I've ever shed so many tears in my life because I am a dietitian and, and not to stereotype us, but we do like things a certain way and we want perfection. <laughs> and so I was working really hard and let me remind you I had a full-time job wow. so so I worked really hard and wanted to make this cookbook awesome and then in the middle of it is when the regulations changed oh. 2010 oh, yes my. and I thought what is this who who did this who 
who made these decisions? <laughs> and and so, but they knew, because uh, she mentioned that the change was coming, but it wasn't clear exactly what the changes would be at that time? No, we had an idea. We had an idea, but we didn't really know. And so we had to modify some of the recipes. The cookbook's still out there floating around. It's something I wish I could go back and revise, you know, for, for many reasons. For, you know, I've learned a lot since then, but also it was in the middle of the, the regulation changes. I learned so much from that project. And although it was so hard, I loved it. I loved it. And when I was done, I felt so excited and so happy that I had a cookbook in my hand that I had had written myself. Uh, Not myself. I mean, the State Department, the employees of the State Department definitely helped. It was a big project. We did trainings with it and we did videos and all these different things. And everybody worked really hard on the project. And it was so awesome. So that's really how I got my start in child nutrition. And and because the regulations had changed, people were really wanting recipes. And so the cookbook got national attention pretty quick, which I didn't really understand what was happening at the time because I didn't understand child nutrition at all and I didn't understand how big it was. Uh And then I went and spoke at SNA. They asked me to go speak at SNA, that conference, ANC about the book. And that was when I got a little bit overwhelmed by, wow, this was a big deal. This is, Did this you is even a big know deal. how many people to expect at your presentation? Were you just no. like, oh, there'll probably be like 10 people there. <laughs> <laughs> there were a lot of people there. And the USDA approached me. That was the first time I had, well, actually, it was a gal from ICN. I was approached by ICN. And then I met a couple of people from the USDA. And then I realized at that time, wow, this is, I might have something here. Wow, that's amazing. That was soon after graduation then? I graduated, well, so this was kind of my second career, but I graduated from, culinary school in 2004. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Within three years, you're like finishing your first cookbook while starting it. When did you finish it? I believe it was launched. Let me think here. I think it was launched shortly after the regulations came out. So 2010, 2011. Wow. Oh, that's awesome. How exciting. Mm -hmm. So you knew that you loved it as soon as you finished the first one. Yes. I did. I was hooked, but I was nervous because I had a full-time job (laughs) and that was my security, right? And then I met my husband and so we were dating for a while and then for a couple of years and, you know, he was a single dad and so kind of not to get too much into those details, but I only saw him every other week before I met the kids. And so he didn't realize how much I worked. Until I started, until I started to get to know the boys, and then we saw each other on a much more regular basis. And he—he is the one who said to me, "Wow, you really work a lot. We might want to do something about this. Like, you might want to pick one or the other." And he asked me, "You know, what would you rather do?" And I said, "I want to write these cookbooks. I want to be a recipe developer. This is so much fun." And he said, "Well." If that's what you want to do, I think you should do it. And I'll, you know, I've got your back. And it was awesome. I just, it was so awesome to have that support. And, and, you know, and I just, I'm so thankful for him every day. Oh, that's awesome. So that was pretty much your path into consulting. After you did the first project, people started to come to you. Right. And I was very fortunate because, then I became a con- a contractor with the State Department doing menu reviews. So I started learning a lot more about compliance. And I, I did menu reviews for CACFP and for NSLP. And I learned a lot. I did that uh, for about four or five years with them. And that really, really taught me a lot. Yeah. Yeah, I've been... <laughs> There, there is a lot to learn. I'm grateful for resources. The USDA looks like they're always trying to improve upon what they already have out there to help people. Was the food buying guide as robust? 
robust as it is now when you were doing the recipe developing? All we had was the calculator and then we had the paper, the, you know, the book. Yeah. So it wasn't online. Yeah. Okay. But but were there trainings about how to use it? Like they have a really in-depth help section now. Honestly, I've never opened the book. I've only looked (laughs) online, so I don't know. Okay. So they, it was just the resource and you needed to figure out how to use it for the most part. Yes. Yes. I did my best. I did my best. And I have to say since now I'm so thankful that because I have written and standardized recipes for the USDA, you know, I've worked with them. So now I really understand how the food buying guide works. Okay. Yeah. What they actually meant. Yeah. Yeah. There was like um, a debate over um, what the hyphen meant. I mean, it was clearly stated in the directions, but you would have to read the directions to know it. And you know, people don't, people don't like to do that. So how do you overcome that? The fact that you can put so much work into developing a recipe, you eliminate all this potential for misunderstanding. And then because people are afraid to kind of dig into something they're uncomfortable with, they run away from directions. Is there um, some trick to helping people have a better relationship with their recipes so that they want to use it and not just put all the ovens on 350? I think it goes back to that mise en place and working together as a team and everyone being flexible to everyone else's ideas. And uh, First of all, we always have to remember we cannot change anything with the recipe until they consult with the menu planner, whoever that is. Sometimes the menu planner is also the bus driver and, you know, and the director and, and, and whatever. And so I've noticed sometimes directors don't have that person actually spelled out, but you, for your review, you must make sure that that person is labeled as the menu planner, whoever it is. Okay. Yeah, it, it is important. So, so the menu planner needs to know if you're going to change anything, even if it's a spice, I feel, even though that's not going to change the way the recipe credits or probably not a lot of the nutrition in it, but it should always taste the same when they go from elementary school to middle school to high school. If they're having the same recipe, you know, if they go to a a fast food restaurant, that's why one of the reasons they're so successful is because it doesn't matter if you go to that restaurant in Idaho or in Florida, you know, clear across the country, it's still the same. And so we need to make sure we're having that those recipes made the same. So going back to the mise en place of covering that recipe, how is it going to be made? And I think that brings out the communication and also even training on recipes. I know I'm a visual person. I personally, I'm not a huge direction reader. I'm embarrassed to say that because I write a lot of directions, but I would rather learn how to do something in a training and I want somebody to show me, okay, what, what is it that you mean exactly? How do you want this done? And, and so learning how your employees learn, I think is really important and what their strengths are. And there might be somebody in your group who is a great trainer. And so they're the person who's teaching everyone to cook this recipe the same way. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. So these days, what does your average day look like now that you are fully into working for yourself, essentially? Well, right now, today, this this month and, and the next month is so we're working on the 60 recipes. We've just got them all standardized. And for the first time ever, we are photographing the the instructions, the steps in the recipes. So I think this is going to be huge. And I'm so excited about it. I, I've been working on my food photography for years. I've taken classes. And I'm so excited that I oh. I finally learned. Yeah, learn, I'm learning food photography and food styling. And so, and one of my employees is a fabulous food stylist. She is amazing. And so... Right now we're taking photos. We're creating the foods from the recipe, recipes that we've developed, and now we are um, photographing them. Oh, so, wow. Oh, yeah. that's exciting. Is it just a two-person team for this project? 
Uh, for this project, it is a two-person, uh-huh. And sometimes I, I have up to um, three people who can help me at a time because I do standardize recipes for some of our industry partners. And so it just depends on how many projects I have going on at once. Oh, wow. And so with the food photography, so both of your your jobs are the types of jobs you don't know exist until you are an adult in the workforce. Like this isn't something that a guidance counselor mentions to you that you could be <laughs> a recipe developer, or you could be a food stylist. How do you know how she ended up doing food styling? Well, she's a dietitian also, and she has taken a lot of interest in pho- photographing her own food and just taught herself. And so just, you know, teaching herself it, it, just like I have. And so we're, we're just kind of a great pair in that way. I think, I think not being afraid to just step out and learn and constantly push yourself on those things that you just don't know. And, and I just want to throw out there, this is kind of going off, off, since you just brought up not really knowing, you know, guidance counsel isn't going to tell you this is a great job. This is where you're going to go. When you get into a kind of job like this, you have to be able to take criticism mm. because I didn't know what I was doing. And that is okay. People need to understand that, that if you want to do something and you don't know everything, it's okay. You're going to mess up. And the thing that that I was really lacking is that I had never worked in a school district, and I was getting criticism for that. And I realized there was a point in my career when I realized I needed to go work for a school district, and I did. I quit my consulting full-time, and I went to work um, for a school district. And I think that was one of the best things that I ever did because I learned so much about what I didn't know. Mm. And... I manage nine schools, including the training kitchen in the second largest school district in Idaho. And now I contract with the largest school district in Idaho. I help them with their recipes and menus and things like that. But when I actually worked in the school, I mean, I never hesitated, even though I was managing. I did a lot of dishes. And that was one of the first things I did when I walked into a kitchen was I always helped them catch up on their dishes. And they will tell you that. I loved getting my hands in the food. I would, whatever they needed me for, if they were in the weeds, I was happy to help. How did that change your approach to what you were already doing? Did it make a difference? Was there anything that you would have done differently had you had that experience sooner? You know, I, I'm sure that it has. I think that I've always been a pretty, I've tried to be a pretty open-minded person, even when I was a reviewer. I'm sure I became a better recipe developer, just understanding how the flow and the service of the schools worked. Because I was managing nine schools, I had elementary and middle and high schools, and they were all of different sizes, serving a number of different children. And so just having that experience and seeing how that process happens I think it was very eye-opening to me at that moment to understand, even though I had been through so many reviews and watched the kids go through the line so fast, I was more focused on, do they have a half a cup of fruit or vegetable, right? Right. But when I was managing, it was a little bit different where I'm thinking, oh my gosh, we got to get these kids through. And so, so that mindset was different. And, and I know that's, that's probably really impacted my recipe development and thinking about how that that happens in real real life in, in schools. And I have to say one day <laughs> I burnt the breadsticks, the chef burnt the breadsticks. And <laughs> it was really funny. Not at the time, but it's funny now. And just that moment of, oh my gosh, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna get that grain? Yeah. Out, right. And so <laughs> and so of course, you know, we're pulling the bread out of the freezer and we're toasting it up with, with some little garlic. And, and so that was what it, it turned out. It was fine. Okay. But but I think those real life experiences are, are what, you know, makes us better. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And the idea that 
you want to really be good at everything you do sometimes does get in the way of you trying new things and getting the extra training that you need. So I appreciate that you brought that up. What did it take for you to get to that point? Because like you mentioned, not to stereotype dietitians. However, I haven't met one yet that isn't (laughs) a little particular about their own performance and wanting things to be done a certain way and maybe thinking, hey, if it can't be perfect, I'd rather put it in the trash. Like I know that perfectionism um, is the enemy of progress, but it really takes, it's taken me years to realize truly that done is better than perfect. Like you got to just get started. What did it take for you to get to that point? You know, I have to credit my mom for that because my mom used to say to me all the time, you know, Brenda, you have to find what you love and you have to do it and you have to figure out how to do it really well. And I believed her because she always used to say to me, all I ever wanted to be was a mom. And she did that really, really well. And in her doing that really well, she would always say to me that your failures are just as important as your successes and you are going to fail and you're going to fail big. And I did, I did. And, and so in doing that, I've never been afraid to fail. I don't, I don't, I know a lot of people I'm close to, they see that in me and they say, you just don't seem to be scared that you're going to fail. And I, I don't. I don't fail because I feel like that's just as important as succeeding. Although, of course, we want to succeed a lot more than we want to fail, obviously. But in our biggest failures, we learn the most about who we are, what we want, and how we function. And so, although I still live with this idea of I want everything perfect, Somehow I don't fear imperfection, uh, which is kind of a weird dichotomy, but, but it is how, how I live. And I, and I think a way to get over that fear, if, if, you know, one of your listeners is thinking, gosh, I don't, I wouldn't know how to get over that fear. I think we really have to stop judging ourselves and others because we fear what other people are going to think. And so, so to overcome that, we somehow overcome the fact that we do want everything to be great and we want everything to be perfect, but it's not going to be. And when it's not, you have to step back and not, you know, crawl in bed and put the covers over your head, but you have to sit down and really write down on a piece of paper what you learned and how you're going to do it different next time. That's a really helpful reframe. And you're fortunate to have heard that so early on. I know that there's talk these days about having a growth mindset and it's uncommon. And that is like what you described, that you understand mistakes can be desirable because you may learn more than a mistake than happening by chance, maybe to do something correctly the first time. You'll learn much more if you approach it that way and you analyze it a little and make some changes to how you approach the task. So that's really helpful. I think we all could use reminders because if you haven't heard that from childhood onward, that's a difficult shift to make. It's, it's a very difficult shift to make. I'll just say that even the way Mm -hmm. our educational system is set up sometimes, you know, Mm a hundred is what you want. And if there's bonus, then of course you would want that 105. And if you get a 93, it's disappointing. At least it is to me. (laughs) It is to a lot of people. But it's like, honestly, it's unrealistic to think that you're going to get everything right all the time. And is that a helpful measure of success? You know, I I like your approach much better. (laughs) And there's research to support it. So good for your mom. Yeah, she did do a good job, (laughs) didn't she? (laughs) 
Well, I have to say she was a lunch lady oh. um, for a while. Yes, she was. When I was in kindergarten, she wanted to be close to me. Thank goodness, because I was very shy and I didn't want to talk to anyone. And so she worked at our school and I was so happy to have her there whenever I needed her. So Oh yeah, it's, that it's is so sweet. So she literally got the job just to be, so she could go to school with you. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that is so sweet. Are you the only child? No, there are four of us. Wow. I'm the oldest. That yeah. is amazing. Okay, but you are the first one. Gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I can't imagine. My mom was like, get out. Just go. <laughs> I will see you when you get home. Try it out. You'll get used to it. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think yeah. the mom was not the only thing my mom ever wanted to do. She did a good job, but this that was not her her calling. We'll just say that. <laughs> so I wanted to ask about the key concepts you could teach us about culinary science that are lesser known. And you touched on that a little bit. Is there anything that really stands out to you that you think is like a game changer? I know when you mentioned you have to give the food room for browning to be possible. That's pretty tremendous. Is there one more gem that significant you can drop on us? I just think we need to cook with more acids in schools because we are cooking low sodium. So not only is it important to get that caramelization for extra flavor, but acids offer us so much flavor, and I think we sometimes forget how much they can brighten up vegetables. We don't want to cook acid um, like a lemon juice with broccoli because it can actually make it hard and make it cook slower. Well, actually, maybe we would. That might be an interesting experience, putting, putting on the broccoli so it doesn't cook yeah, down okay. so far when it goes in the warmer. I don't know. But adding uh, acid really brightens up the vegetables and also gives it a nice flavor. I remember when I was younger, um, my mom, when we lived on the farm before she became a single mom, she would give me spinach out of her garden that she had canned and she would put vinegar on it. And that's a comfort food to me. And so she gave me that at a very young age. And, and so, of course, we're not going to give kids spinach with vinegar on it. I mean, maybe if they're really little, you might want to start them out now so that they end up liking it like I do when they're older. But, but adding a little bit of that lemon juice to broccoli or even some green beans or, or making vinaigrettes that are, you know, we need to add a little bit more flavorings to the acids so they're not so strong because kids aren't used to acids. But I just don't feel like we're using vinaigrettes enough and and we're missing out on the flavor profile that they they provide for us. And there's so many different ones out there. So I highly encourage everyone to do a little research, you know, on how they can incorporate some vinaigrettes and some citrus that, you know, we have lemons and limes and oranges and grapefruits that we could incorporate that into our cooking. Is that more for after the cooking process is over, something that goes on top of the dish or something that's in the dish early on? Usually something after, even with beans, legumes, you can add acid, but you would want to do it after so it's more of a seasoning after because you don't want it to harden as it's cooking because it will make the vegetables tougher, including legumes. So, you know, making legume salads or even on tacos, putting that lime wedge on top. Kids love that and add so much flavor. So it's really kind of more of a, a dressing garnish. Now, I'm not trying to get rid of ranch, but... I think we could do more than just ranch. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, we don't all want to be murdered, so we know we can't get rid of ranch. The kids would, like, have a total fit. But I will say this year we did we did street tacos with the – actually, you already know this, because didn't we work on the street tacos while you guys were doing the demo? I think so. The I think so, yeah. I really like the lime wedges. I get very excited about the lime wedges. So, yes, I can see that more acids would be fun. And I guess if you give the kids the option of having it on, that could help ease them into it too, since they might not be familiar. Maybe they – will be a little reluctant at first. Yeah. So just 
you know, mild. You want to add, make sure you're adding it with some of the vegetable oil if you have that as a USDA food or some kind of oil and obviously not a lot, but, you know, you can even add some water to dilute it a little bit, but mm-hmm. just giving them a little bit of that zing. Oh, that's fantastic. And you've done so much, but is there one accomplishment that really stands out for you that you're really proud of related to your work in child nutrition? You know, I just think the way that I've been able to influence the children in my own family and the way that I've been able to get children in schools to try new foods I think writing the cookbooks is, is great and it's really fun and it sounds exciting to everyone. But when I really think about an accomplishment, I'll never forget this little girl. I was at a school and we were sampling out a variety of different vegetables. And so we were kind of going down the line. Do you want peppers? Do you want carrots? We had these uh, bell peppers that were sliced. Do you want to try them? And she looked up at me with these big brown eyes. So And she said, are you really a chef? And I said, yes, I'm really a chef. And I said, would you like to try some of these vegetables? And she goes, I did try vegetables. I don't like vegetables, but I love yours. (laughs) And so I think just for what my um, career stands for is probably any child that will try vegetables and like them to enhance their health is so exciting and, and very rewarding. And that's probably the thing that I'm most excited about. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. So you already gave us your website so that we can keep track of when the book is coming out. How else do we find you online? Where should we look for you on social media? Well, we're just getting started on that. So um, the Facebook is Chef Brenda RDN at, and then also in Instagram and then a little bit on Twitter and then also on, on, on LinkedIn. So that's a great place um, to find me. You know, I would love, I'm just throwing this out there because I am very visual. If you did a series with like the food science lesson of the day. Well, basically, I guess they already did this. Alton Brown did this, but you could do it for school nutrition, like the food science at the beginning of the lesson and do a quick recipe or some technique demonstrating the lesson you're covering. That would really work on IGTV. Just a thought. We actually have some of that coming out. That's funny. I've been watching his videos because I love how he does things. So Yes. yes. Yes, uh-huh. I do too. But the format was it was excellent for its time. And he did do a refresher. But yeah, no, I, I would like to see someone else do the same thing. So that's exciting. That's great. So we'll yes, just thank you get so on much. your mailing list and we'll be able to we'll get notified when that's available, right? There you go. Yes, Perfect. absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent. I would look for it about Marchish time. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on this show. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Thanks so much for joining me for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. Remember, the only fee for the show is that you share it with others whenever you hear something useful, and that should be every episode. Please reach out to me and let me know what kind of content you would like to hear more of. You can find me on social media at School Nutrition RD. All right, everybody, I'll see you next week.